Opinions heard in the preceding program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of Cumulus Media or WJR Radio. Good evening. You're listening to the Mackinac on Michigan show on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb. I'm Jarrett Scorup. And this show, uh, we have an excellent lineup tonight. We'll be talking to gubernatorial candidate Tudor Dixon and candidate for Congress John James in the 10th District. We're also talking to Kathy Hoekstra of the Pacific Legal Foundation about a wild local lawsuit where Oakland County and the city of Southfield have taken homes of residents who owed taxes, sold them for a profit, seemingly in violation of the Constitution. And we'll be chatting with Beth LeBlanc of the Detroit News, who will give us an update on what's happening in all the major races here in Michigan. Uh, But first and most importantly, this show is brought to you by the Mackinac Center's Frank Beckman Center for Journalism. Uh, Jarrett, why don't you give us an overview of what that is and why it's such an important new project that you guys are working on? Sure. So the Frank Beckman Center, we we named it obviously after the longtime WJR host here, uh, Frank Beckman, who passed away um, a couple of months ago. We had been working with him on launching a journalism center uh, housed under the Mackinac Center. Um, and that would sponsor a news website, a lot of our uh, work that we're doing to oversee government waste and abuse, especially public records requests and hosting this radio show and just different ways to investigate the government, get the word out on that. Um, And so we have the center. We have a matching gift for the center that will uh, be continuing through this year. So anybody that's interested in learning about that, learning the kinds of activities we're doing, we've got ongoing stories uh, that we're breaking there all the time. Um, So producing news from a limited government perspective. So please go check out Frank Beckman Center for Journalism.org or just Google the Frank Beckman Center and you'll find out about it. Sounds wonderful. We'll be back with our wonderful lineup after a brief break with more of the Mackinac on Michigan show here on WJR. Welcome back to the Mackinac on Michigan show brought to you by the Frank Beckman Center for Journalism on WJR. Hey, we're giving out a free window decal. Uh, if you text WJR to 50155, you get a free window cling. It's a, it's a white cling in the shape of the state of Michigan. You can put it on your car, your laptop, water bottle, whatever else. It's pretty cool. Um, so send a text WJR to 50155. Uh, we're up with our next guest here on the show, Kathy Hoekstra from the Pacific Legal Foundation. We, we wanted to cover a local issue here in Metro Detroit, and this is a wild one. It's a case where uh, a lawsuit where the city of Southfield, in conjunction with Oakland County, has seized people's homes, sold them at a profit, and then turned around in some sort of a scheme to enrich city officials. Uh, Sounds unconstitutional, uh, but at the very least, it sounds unjust and wrong. Kathy, welcome to the show. Well, hi, Kelly. Thank you so much for uh, in- inviting me to, to, the, to the program. Um, very much appreciate it uh, and appreciate you uh, allowing us to talk about this case. Um, and yeah, it is it is unconstitutional as well as inappropriate and, and simply awful. Um, and it, it, well, let me, let me start back up just a little bit. Some of your listeners may be familiar with a case that uh, we Pacific Legal Foundation, my employer, uh, took to the Michigan Supreme Court. That was uh, Raffaelli uh, versus County of uh, Oakland County. And that was the case where a gentleman, Yuri Raffaelli, also incidentally uh, bought a uh, property in Southfield. 
and it was foreclosed uh, over eight dollars and forty one cents. Yes, um, this and was, that was, this yeah, was what, that three or years four ago. years yep. ago. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was about three, four years. Or yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, they stretched way back before that. But when Pacific Legal Foundation jumped in, uh, we took over because um, what happened is Oakland County foreclosed on uh, the property. It, it was a miscalculation. But no matter, I mean, you know, we know you do need to pay your property taxes. Nobody is, is saying that that's not um, what, what, you know, needs to happen. But the government is not allowed to keep more than it is owed in taxes. And in this case, uh, Oakland County did indeed sell the property for 20, close to $25,000 and kept all of the proceeds, not just the $8.41 or whatever fees had accrued. So what uh, Pacific Legal Foundation's position on this is that the surplus in somebody's property, uh, when you sell it, what is left over after what is paid to the government is your home equity, right? And Mm -hmm. that is just as much property as a house itself. A lot of times, for a lot of people, that equity represents people's life savings. It represents their retirement. uh, It represents, you know, the source of family, um, you know, history, et cetera. So we took that to the uh, Michigan Supreme Court, and they ruled unanimously, by the way, uh, a couple of uh, years ago that, um, yes, indeed, they agreed uh, that it is unconstitutional to for a government to sell a, a property over a, a tax foreclosure and keep the proceeds. Uh, you know, the Fifth uh, Amendment to the uh, Constitution says, government, you can take um, property for public purpose, but you must pay just compensation. And in all these cases, the county was not. So that's all said and done. And, you know, that really, really... Um, uh, kind of hit the reset button in, in foreclosure uh, processes because a lot of places are using those foreclosure sales to line their, their coffers, Wayne County, uh, Oakland County in particular as well. Well, flash forward uh, uh, almost six, maybe six, seven months later uh, after that, and the, there is a loophole. Um, the Michigan General Property Tax Act uh, does allow for a loophole, and it is called first right, or right of first refusal. Um, the Raffaelli case said, hey, when government sells your foreclosed home at auction, you can't keep the proceeds. Uh, however, what if that home or that property never actually makes it to auction? There's your loophole. And the city of Southfield has really made, uh, perfected this, uh, this process. So this is where, uh, you guys, if, if, if the city of Southfield can go to Oakland County, because the county is the one that does the foreclosure process, the city can jump in before the property goes to foreclosure, goes to auction, and says, you know what, I'm going to exercise my right, uh, my first uh, right of first refusal. So basically, I'll take that property off your hands. Don't even let it go to auction. I'll take it off your hands. Here, I'm going to pay the, uh, the taxes and everything that's owed, hand it over to us. Um, they, now, now, the deal is with Southfield, Southfield doesn't sell the property because they're a government unit. What mm-hmm. Southfield has done, and this is crazy, I recommend anybody go to PacificLegal.org uh, and you can read more about it. But it's crazy. Southfield is reimbursed for what they paid the county by a nonprofit organization called the Southfield, a nonprofit housing corporation. Mm. And then the Southfield nonprofit sells that property to a for-profit company called the Southfield Neighborhood Revitalization Initiative for a dollar. This for-profit <laughs> fixes up the house, 
flips it, sells it. Sells yeah. it. Wow. It's crazy. So it's a side so deal. Yeah. It, 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 yeah, it's a side deal. And, you know, we, we have a, a group of clients. Um, Tawanda Hall uh, is the name on the, the lead clients. And, you know, they had property and uh, they had a house. You know, the, and here's another thing. The homes are all paid for. There's no mortgages on these homes, of mm-hmm. course. Um, so- and they... They, they sold her, she, she ended up, they sold uh, her house. Um, it, it, all of these folks are given like a month to, to leave or, or they'll be evicted. Uh, and this house was taken and sold for more than $300,000. They owed twenty two grand. Um, and so what we are saying on our, and they went ahead and sued in federal court and lost. We are taking the case, we've taken the case over at the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, so this is a federal case, actually. Um, okay. And I, again, I don't, we don't have enough time to talk about it, but I encourage yeah. everybody go to PacificLegal.org yeah, and we get, you will learn a lot more. We've got about one minute here, Kathy. Um, so, yeah, it seems to me this is all, this is kind of what are the incentives for the government. So if you mm-hmm. have an incentive that you can get that property for just the cost of what people, um, what you they foreclose on, then you resell it. If you can keep all that money, they have a lot of incentive to do it. And so the Supreme Court tried to prevent that by saying, nope, if you do that, you can do it. We don't want people skipping their property taxes, but you have to give the money back, it seems, what the Supreme Court wanted and what you guys want is that sure. they have to reimburse the people. And that would cause the counties to say, okay, we're not going to do this anymore. But they're finding this loophole around it. What what should state lawmakers do to prevent this? Or well, the I, they should take it. Well, they, they, well both. Uh, all of them should look at uh, what is actually causing these uh, perverse incentives, right? If it's the right of first refusal, if that's a part of the law that needs to be tweaked, you know. Uh, but as far as the case goes, um, what we would like is for the Sixth Circuit to say, look, uh, even if it's not, this property is not sold at a foreclosure auction, even it's enriching somebody along the way, and the government cannot defend that as saying it's a public use. The government, somewhere along the way, still has to uh, provide just compensation to property owners. So Kathy, that's what we're fighting for. Uh, Kathy Hoekstra from the Pacific Legal Foundation. That's a fascinating uh, and just terrible story, really. Uh, but we hope you guys prevail on that, um, uh, seeking just compensation against what is seemingly just totally an unconstitutional move by Oakland County and the city of Southfield. we got to leave it there. We'll be back with more of the Mackinac on Michigan show on WJR in just a moment. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Mackinac on Michigan show on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb, joined by Jared Skurup of the Mackinac Center. Hey, we're giving away a free window decal. It's a white cling. It's in the shape of the state of Michigan. You can put it on your car, your laptop, uh, anywhere around your home. If you just text WJR to 50155, WJR to 50155, you can get a free window cling. Uh, But we're going to move on to another great guest on our show. Today, we're joined by a gubernatorial candidate, Tudor Dixon, from the west side of the state. She's running as a Republican. Tudor, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, Tudor, first, uh, you're from the other side of Michigan, so maybe for the listeners that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you felt compelled to enter the race for governor? Yes, I am from the Muskegon area. I'm from Norton Shores, and my background is mostly steel manufacturing. So we had a family steel foundry. I worked there for many years, moved into steel forging, and most recently have been in the media trying to excel and and kind of give voice to conservatives who have been silenced through regular 
means of media, social media and whatnot. But I'm also a mom of four daughters. So when I looked at what was happening in the state over the past few years from a stand, the standpoint of businesses, but also our kids, I kept saying, you know, who's going to step up and do this? Who's going to who's going to run against Gretchen Whitmer? We looked very closely at who were the options to run. And, and at that point, back in May, when we announced there weren't many people in the race and really no one has stepped up from that traditional political background to run against her. And we felt that my experience in manufacturing but also in the media and with the political world and understanding the issues was the great co- a great combination to go up against her. Yeah. Um, so this is Jarrett. I was, uh, you know, you talk a little bit about your background there. Obviously, you're wanting, running versus an incumbent governor. Um, it's it's difficult to knock off an incumbent governor, especially here in Michigan. And But obviously, Governor Whitmer is very polarizing for people, a lot of really controversial decisions. How much is this race going to be about how people feel about what she's done versus what you're bringing to the table, uh, especially compared to, you know, like you said, kind of a generic uh, uh, Republican candidate? I think what she's done is obviously what's going to bring people out to the polls in a different way for an incumbent. I think we have to remember that when we talk about an incumbent in a race in Michigan, this year is different than we've ever seen before because of what she's done. But it goes beyond COVID. It also goes to what her agencies are currently doing to businesses. So as I travel across the state, I hear from businesses, whether it's agriculture, manufacturing, restaurants and lodging, all of these folks feel that the the hand of bureaucracy is on them, that Gretchen Whitmer's appointed heads of agencies are still considering them uh, businesses to go out and get. We're considered a gotcha state outside of Michigan. And so I think that we have to talk about what we're going to do from a standpoint of policy going forward, changing this up to be less less regulation, attacking our businesses, and making sure that parents are involved in our schools because schools are also a huge issue in this state. We've really fallen off on, on education. We used to be in the top 10. Now we're in the bottom 12, and parents are ready to get out to the polls and vote for something different. So, Tudor, this is Kelly. Uh, You know, we learned over the past couple of weeks what the Democrats, particularly the statewide candidates, uh, uh, Whitmer, Benson, Nessel, are going to focus on, and that's abortion. They want to make that the central issue here. I'm wondering, you know, you're a woman. You're one of the only women running uh, for governor right now. The top concerns, you look across the state of Michigan, you look at the polls, that's not the top concern. It's inflation. It's how COVID hit our businesses. It's education. It's the things you're talking about. How can we draw a differential between the two, and and, and what are your thoughts on how this race might progress if you become the Republican nominee uh, from a woman to a woman running against each other? I think that Democrats would like to bring abortion to the ballot like they did with marijuana, and they believe that that will draw in a lot of people that would vote for Gretchen Whitmer who maybe would not go to the ballot in the past. Uh, I don't think that's the case this year because what they want to put on the ballot would be really pretty radical abortion laws, and I I don't think there's many people out there, whether you're pro-life or not, most people are not for abortion up to the moment of birth. So I think that's why they want to take it there. They feel like that's a place where they can hit conservatives and say, you know, they they want to be radical with abortion. The fact of the matter is they're trying to take the light off of the fact that we're failing in business. We have people leaving the state. We don't have automotive is leaving the state. We don't have good numbers in education. More than 50 percent of our third graders failed their literacy exam. And when Governor Whitmer was given the opportunity during the COVID pandemic 
to say we're going to put dollars into getting kids back on track when it comes to reading. She vetoed that. She said Mm -hmm. she didn't want parents to have that option. And this is really going to be a battle of whether or not government should be making your your decisions for you, whether they are for your children's education, whether they are for whether or not you can run your business and how you can run your business, or your medical decisions. That's what they don't want you to think about. But that is really the battle we're in right now. And it's important because we saw it happen. You mentioned your background um, working for a steel manufacturer. Um, So the... What's kind of happened over the years is I'm sure you remember that a lot of those types of blue collar workers were really very strong Democratic voters, a lot of times uh, union workers. Have you uh, felt like they've moved in the direction of Republicans? How's your support coming from from that kind of group of people? Yeah, I think that we well, we saw that in from 2016 on that the working class was really realizing that it was the Republican Party who was trying to maintain jobs here and making sure that those traditional skilled trade careers were still here in the United States. Now, over the years, even in, as a part of this education indoctrination, we've seen Democrats who have been pushing people to go to college and get rid of skilled trades. So we have seen those people, those folks from unions coming back to the Republican side. But also you have to look at Michigan specifically. This is a governor who recently came out and said, I think we didn't know Ford was leaving and going to Tennessee and Kentucky. These are our union jobs. But this is our legacy industry that she's not protecting. So I think that even union leaders have to say, we've put all this money into Democrats and we're seeing the jobs disappear. And this is not because of the unions. This is because of failed leadership in the state of Michigan. When the governor says, I think we didn't know, these are the meetings she should be having monthly. She should be involved in what's going on in our biggest business, our biggest businesses around the state. And she's clearly just not. It's not important to her, which means union jobs are not important to her, but they are important to me. Tudor, this is Kelly. You've talked a lot about education already. I'm wondering, what are some of the differences of what you would bring to the table as a mother of four uh, in education policy, particularly in Michigan, that you think could really turn our state around? We've already called for tutoring hours to to go out for parents so that they can make a choice of where their student is behind from the pandemic because we have students who were out of school for, in some cases, a year and a half and then out again. So Mm -hmm. we have to catch up. But we also want to see dollars follow the child. We've seen clearer than ever before certain, certain schools... Children don't thrive in and they need something different. And parents should be able to make that decision, whether it is something for your child who has special needs, something for your child who learns better musically, or or perhaps it has to do with COVID. Maybe you feel more comfortable in a school that masks or vice versa. That's something that the parents should be able to make that decision. We're also calling for the Parents' Right to Know Act. The Parents' Right to Know Act gives the parent insight into what's happening in their classroom. We've seen over and over again in Michigan that it's been very challenging for parents to see what's happening in their classroom. We're starting to see some of these equity challenges. The CRT, the pornographic books in middle schools. We're calling for parents to be able to go to their school website and within three clicks get to their child's classroom See what books are in the classroom library, what books are in the school library, what the class syllabus is, and what trainings the teacher's been through in the last few years that they may be bringing into the classroom because we're seeing some of this radical talk about gender and sexuality that does not belong in our grade school. Tudor Dixon, uh, thank you for joining us. We wish you the best on the campaign trail. Uh, Gubernatorial candidate from West Michigan uh, running on the Republican side. Thanks for coming on the show today. 
Thanks, hey, thank you. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. And we'll be back with more of the Mackinac on Michigan show on WJR in just a moment. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Mackinac on Michigan show on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb, joined by Jarrett Skurup of the Mackinac Center. We're giving away a window cling, a free window decal. It's a small white cling in the shape of the state of Michigan. You can put it on your car, your water bottle, uh, your windows all over your house, whatever suits you. If you just text WJR to 50155 and we'll send you a free window cling. Uh, we're going to get back to the program now. Uh, we're talking to Beth LeBlanc. She's a political reporter at the Detroit News. She covers all things Lansing, all the races. She knows what's happening around the state of Michigan at all times. Beth, thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, Beth. Hey, thank you for having me. So, Beth, let's let's start with the more recent news. Uh, you look at sort of polling across the board about what people are really focused on in Michigan. It tends to be, obviously, inflation, the economy, stuff like that. We learned over the past couple of weeks what the Democrats at the statewide level are looking to run on, and that's abortion. Uh, you followed the recent lawsuits that have been filed uh, by Whitmer and Planned Parenthood. Can you give us a, a, a sort of an overarching picture of where you see the governor's race right now and where it might be headed? Yeah, I mean, definitely with with the filing of this lawsuit, I think Governor Whitmer signaled that this will be one of the issues she she runs on um, the abortion debate. Um, And I I think that could affect actually a couple of races because, you you know, basically, if if Roe versus Wade is overturned at the federal level, it gets kicked down to the state, which Michigan has an abortion ban on the books, actually since like the 1800s. But the law, the most recent law was 1931. Um, and her her lawsuit obviously seeks to basically call that that 1931 law unconstitutional, um, but it has a a lot of like political effects in that sense. One that she is she's running on that issue, but then also um, in the attorney general's race as well. Um, you know, you basically have have Nestle who says she's not going to enforce the law, and then um, Republican mm-hmm. attorney general candidates who said they will. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. But in terms of the governor's race, I mean, I think as soon as that lawsuit was filed, we saw a couple of um, fundraising emails going out, kind of mentioning it and and focusing on that. Um, but, you know, Whitmer ran on, on fixing the, the damn road, so I think that will definitely be a focus going forward. Um, and she has prided herself on kitchen table issues like the roads, like, um, you know, economic issues, mm-hmm. um, hoping she's hoping to get a few different um like tax cuts or or tax credit increases through that would benefit some like key demographics that that usually vote for her in that sense yeah so beth i was uh i'm curious on the i you know, we we can't say that fixing the roads anymore. It has to be fixing the damn roads. We have to get the this entered people's (laughs) lexicon um is it is that always tough for a candidate to run on that issue i feel like this is like a damned if you do damned you don't issue where everyone wants to fix transportation and then people uh get mad about potholes and then they get mad that there's too much construction they're slowed down like i never really got that as like a political issue but what are you seeing uh what what's happening with the roads are they devoting more money to that do they have agreement on that is that money going to be in time for an election where do you see that kind of transportation issue as we go through the the campaign through this year yeah well it 
So it's a little bit complicated because right now the state is just flush with cash mm-hmm. um, from, you know, from higher than, than expected revenues, from bonding for roads, from federal COVID relief and infrastructure dollars. They have a lot of money for roads. But the, the issue that they're kind of grappling with right now is like a lot of industries um, or like a lot of services, they're facing uh, really aggravated inflation right now. The cost. Yeah. So for for them, yeah, I mean, so MDOT told us recently that since July, their bids for road projects have been coming in 10% higher than what they estimated they would be. So right now the, the agency is having to look at their five-year plan and, and see, you know, what projects can kind of be downgraded in scope or pushed off you know, past five years or what have you. I mean, there's still going to be a ton of construction. People are going to see a lot of orange barrels and everything, but that is something they're grappling with. And um, it it kind of makes fulfilling that promise of fixing the dam roads kind of difficult. Yeah, the Um, the big thing there is the material costs. Yeah. Um, I, besides my policy job, I build decks on the side. I did one this past weekend and I've done very similar and it's twice the cost as it was last year or two years ago. And yeah, I would assume seeing the same thing with, with roads, which uses oil in order for a lot of the products. So. Yeah. Well, and you know, the other thing too, uh, with roads is that you had this infusion of cash for infrastructure, not just in Michigan, but throughout the nation. So you have a lot of states trying to fix their roads right now or fix infrastructure and they're going after limited, very expensive resources right now. So, yeah, it should be interesting to see what happens from there. And and you're right that it is a difficult issue to to run on because it is aggravating to to hit those orange barrels. I will speak from experience for that. But at the same time, I I also know that the roads um, by my place are not great. So um, it is one of those things. Will people will people recognize that there's been movement there? Will they see that there hasn't been movement, but will they excuse it as, as, you know, being a byproduct of all the craziness that's gone on over the past four years? I I guess we'll see. Uh, Beth, this is Kelly. We've just talked a lot about the Democratic side of the race, where they're focused. I'm wondering if you could switch to the Republican side of the race. There's a lot more activity, obviously, a number of gubernatorial candidates kind of uh, trying to jostle for first place right now, even though... Uh, you know, James Craig seems to be uh, the leading candidate at the time. I'm, I'm, I'm curious your your picture of, of where the re- Republican candidates for governor sort of stand. And also, uh, since Donald Trump was here just a couple of weeks ago, uh, where you see his influence in Michigan and whether that is, uh, you know, if he can if he can actually be the kingmaker, if 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 his endorsement means something or if you think that's sort of waning in some way. Yeah, I mean, so. Definitely at at Trump's rally in Washington Township a couple of weeks ago, there were a lot of people there. And speaking from from having having attended the rallies, you know, while he was president and the one a couple weeks ago, there really wasn't a difference in terms of the atmosphere there. There were a lot of people. They were very enthusiastic about the president or former president. I would say the biggest difference between then and now is that there there were a lot of there was a lot of talk about the elect, the 2020 election and a lot of the political experts we've talked to have said that's kind of you know it will probably push through some like the AG and Secretary of State candidates through these nominating conventions but it's kind of a, a dangerous card to play for the 
governor candidates mm-hmm. because if if they want to win those independent votes um, or even moderate Republicans during the primary, they're they're they have to walk kind of a fine line on that issue. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, so he definitely does have. It, it appeared that he still has a lot of influence from the rally a couple weeks ago. And it, in terms of the governor's races, he did. There were quite a few uh, governor candidates at that rally. He did single one out on stage and kind of stopped short of an endorsement there, uh, Tudor Dixon. Mm-hmm. And um, she was the only one mentioned, but James Craig was there. Uh, Perry Johnson, I believe, was there. There were a few others. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think their issues are, they're, they're kind of running the gamut right now, what everybody is focusing on. I think one that a lot of folks are looking at is, is the impact of, uh, you know, think, like lockdowns and, and executive orders during the pandemic. They're looking at the 2020 election. They're looking at, um, you know, getting Michigan's economy back up and running and um, and attracting more jobs to the state. They're, they're kind of running the gamut. There are a lot of candidates headed into the August primary as of right now. We'll see what happens after the filing deadline for these folks. But um, with that many heading into a primary, it's kind of hard to say what will happen. James Craig has been leading in a lot of polling. Um, but like I said, when you have that many in the race, it's It's difficult to know how a primary will turn out. Beth LeBlanc at the Detroit News, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You're listening to the Mackinac Michigan Show on WJR. We'll be right back. to the Mackinac on Michigan show brought to you by the Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb, joined by Jarrett Skurup of the Mackinac Center. Uh, one more time, we're giving away a free window cling. Text WJR to 50155. It's a small, white, Michigan-shaped cling you can put on your car, uh, your water bottle, wherever else in your home. Uh, WJR to 50155. we got a great next guest, another candidate, John James. He's been in the news for years running for a couple of different offices, and now he's turned his sights to the U.S. House. He's running in the Michigan 10th District as a Republican. John, welcome to the show. Hey, John. Hey, thanks for having me on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So first, just uh, you've run for the Senate. Now you're taking aim at the House. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why you're best suited uh, for this particular race and in, in Macomb County? Um, I think for a lot of reasons. Uh, the first uh, of, uh, of the top three, I'd say, is uh, during a supply chain crisis, uh, having supply chain experts uh, representing the folks of Macomb, Michigan, uh, I think would be a good look. Uh, I have a... a Masters from Penn State. Most importantly, I run a family business, automotive supply chain, for the past 10 years. I understand what it takes uh, to bring American jobs back from overseas. I understand what it takes to make sure that we keep good-paying American jobs right here in Macomb County. Um, I understand what it takes to help small business owners thrive and help uh, families in, in our in our district in our state uh, continue to be prosperous. I'm also a combat veteran. I understand that. Uh, Right now, with this newly drawn 10th congressional district I'm running in, uh, this is the first time in uh, generations that uh, both Selfridge Air National Guard Base and the Arsenal Democracy, the Arsenal Innovation, uh, is going to be in the exact same district. Uh, this is also a district that has the heaviest per capita manufacturing labor footprint in the entire country. Uh, having somebody who understands manufacturing, understands defense, 
this is something that we have the opportunity to have that in, in, in one person representing this district. But most importantly, um, this is a district that people immigrated to from all over the world, uh, whether it's Ukraine or Italy or Poland or the Balkans, people from all over the world have come here for opportunity, for freedom. I feel like opportunity and freedom right now are, are at risk. Uh, under the past two years and certainly under this administration. Uh, my father and my mother came up from the Jim Crow stuff for freedom and opportunity, and I feel like we need to have someone representing this area who uh, believes not only in protecting that freedom and opportunity, protecting the American dream, also someone who has the, the tools, the skills, and the opportunity in the majority to be able to protect that um, for those who live here. So I'm excited to have the opportunity to serve. I know this is a great fit. I'm looking forward to earning the trust uh, of people who, uh, who currently live in the district, John, you mentioned uh, uh, Ukraine. You're you're obviously you're you're a veteran. You're you're a West Point guy. Um, so, what should Congress be doing about that? I mean, I know that you know we're giving you a couple minutes here, and it's a really messy situation. Mm-hmm. Um, should we be welcoming more people from Ukraine to this country? What kind of support should Congress do? What's your what's your short take on that issue? Well, short take, uh, <laughs> I, I said often um, that. Both political parties have failed, uh, and, and where they have failed um, um, more often than not is with immigration reform, legal legal immigration. Um, I, I believe that with uh, with the opportunities that we have, uh, it's an economic and moral imperative um, to have legal immigration, and both parties haven't figured out how to get it out of each other's way in, uh, in making that happen. Fix our roads. We need to take care of agriculture. We need to uh, we need to have folks to help run restaurants because because business owners are, are hurting. Um, I, I think that there is absolutely a way that Congress can uh, can help from the human perspective because we have family and friends. Uh, and I, as I'm going around the district, I, I was just at an event at the Palazzo uh, in Shelby this, uh, to end the last week, and uh, we, uh, I was speaking with uh, some Ukrainian women with, with tears in their eyes who were talking about their cousins. Uh, who are still over and couldn't get back over. Um, we have a lot to do from a standpoint, but from a defense standpoint, um, one of the things that I'm most concerned with is uh, the weakness that's projected from this current genera- uh, this current administration has given China and Russia the communist influence around the world license um, to uh, to continue to probe at American interests all over the world. We have to stop that. We have to make America safe by making America strong in one group way that Congress can do that is, uh, is is give us our fair share of the insurance contract spending right here in Macomb County. Um, Macomb County has the infrastructure, has the engineering capacity, and has the work ethic to lead the country in the sense um, being able to uh, bring forward and, and compete on hypersonics, be able to compete using our supply base, our expertise, and our hard work here uh, to protect the nation. There's many things that we continue to do, but um, just by fair share of that defense spending uh, would help make our nation safer and help make folks uh, in the area more prosperous. Uh, John, this is Kelly. I, just sticking with Ukraine for a minute, because uh, like Jared said, you're a combat veteran. You've got experience overseas. I'm just curious, do you think that you said both parties have failed? Do you think that um, that we should have done more to supply weapons with Ukraine? Do you think that it's almost too little too late on trying to stop importing Russian oil? I mean, how aggressive would you draw the line without provoking a larger world war uh, if you were a member of Congress helping to make these decisions and pushing new laws? I have three little boys. Um, John John is eight, Hudson is seven, and Christian is three. Um, I ask myself, um, which one of my young sons would I sacrifice on a battlefield? Take a look at the lessons of history. Um, when you look at the failings of the League of Nations, 
when you take a look that Italy and Japan and Germany uh, made while they were testing to resolve the League of Nations and, and the thing they did, I mean, and I, I, I kid you not, literally in Texas, uh, sanctioning everything oil and coal back 100 years ago, and we're doing the same exact things right now by not holding um, 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 China and not holding the outlets, the lifelines for Russia accountable, um, by not supplying those weapons. And you see flags flying, you see backgrounds on Instagram photos and standing in solidarity with Ukraine. Well, guess what? While people are standing in solidarity, grandmothers and children are being shot down in Ukraine. Uh, I, I believe that a threat to democracy anywhere is a threat to democracy everywhere. And uh, I hate war. I hate war. But uh, I don't fear anything but God. And the, I think the best way is to make sure that we continue to protect strength and that America keeps its promises and that people know uh, that goes uh, forward with uh, China, India, Iran, anyone supporting this, this dictator. Uh, we cannot overlook the fact that we must do more ourselves supplying those weapons to Ukraine, and we have to hold those who are abetting Russia accountable, and we must do so immediately. If this administration is too weak to do it, then Congress must act. John James, candidate for U.S. House in the 10th District over near Macomb County. Uh, appreciate you coming on and experience, uh, sharing your experience as a combat veteran and, and what's going on in the world today. It's a scary time for a lot of people, um, and we could we could use more experience, certainly in Washington. Thanks for coming on, John. Thank you, John. And that's a wrap for today. You've been listening to the Mackinac on Michigan show brought to you by the Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on WJR. You should go to frankbeckmancenterforjournalism.com, get a better sense of everything that we do with the uh, with that organization, uh, especially in exposing government overreach and abuse. Um, catch us next time here on the Mackinac on Michigan show. I'm Kelly Cobb with Jared Skurup, signing off. Opinions heard in the preceding program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of Cumulus Media or WJR Radio.